Hey everybody, this is the Future of Weird Fiction panel from Necronomicon 2017. Uh, they're going to be discussing the most vital weird fiction of today and the direction that they see it moving towards the future. Uh, I've tried to clean the audio up as best I could. There's a wicked buzz in this one that I wasn't able to uh, to pull out, but the, uh, the sound quality is good as far as being able to hear all of the panelists and everything, so we hope you enjoy it. Thanks. moderating the Future of Weird Fiction panel. And if they could go down the line and introduce themselves, that would be wonderful. Hello, I'm Ruthanna Emrus. I am the author of the Innsmouth Legacy series, of which Wintertide is out and Deep Roots will be out in next July. I also co-blog with Anne Pillsworth, the Lovecraft Reread series on Tor.com. I'm Ellen Datlow. I'm an anthologist. Uh, the next anthologies I have coming out are Haunted Nights with Lisa Morton, which is the HWA anthology uh, inspired by Halloween, although we, we originally had Halloween in the title, but then we decided, the publisher decided not to do Halloween. But it's that, it basically Halloween stories. And I have a, um, an Alice in Wonderland anthology coming out from Tor called Mad Hatters and March Hares, um, all original stories inspired by Alice in Wonderland and Through the, look, and what, out through the Looking Glass. Um, that's coming out in December from Tor. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I have no name tags. You'll have to guess who I am, unless you have the program book. Oh, is that Niels? No, it's not. Uh, I'm Michael Kelly. I'm the publisher of Undertow Publications and an editor, a reformed writer. Um, our press does the annual Year's Best Weird Fiction, also the Shadows and Tall Trees, whenever I get my act together. Single author collections. We just publish, mostly what we publish, is, well, we just published short fiction, and it's, it's in the weird horror genre, so that's what I do, thanks. Hi, I'm Sam Cowan, is that on? Mm -hmm. uh, I do a small press called Dim Shores, uh, mainly chapbooks, and now we're getting into anthologies and that kind of thing, too. Uh, there's one out now called Looming Low, uh, just came out here at the con, and hopefully that'll be coming out every year or two from here on down the line, but we'll see how this one does. All right, so I'm going to start off with the stupidest question, but it just has to be done. And I'm going to start with Sam to go along the line. What is weird fiction? <laughs> no. It's whatever you think it is. Well, Peter Straub had a good I point. I said we'll start with Sam. All right, all right. Peter, Peter Straub had a good point this morning. Oh, sorry. <laughs> all right, Sam, go ahead. I'm jumping in, sorry. All right. Um, go ahead. I would probably say it's uh, anything that has a nebulous or unexplained um, tone or topic to the fiction. Um, it could be a lot of different things. Sometimes it's kind of horror, sometimes it's kind of fantasy, and sometimes it's almost not any of those things. But there's always something in there that is maybe unexplainable and unsettling. Um, that's about the best I can say. Yeah, I mean, 
I've been trying to define it for three or four volumes of this anthology series now, and it's we really can't. Um, to me, weird fiction can follow under a few different umbrellas. It can be different genres. Um, it can be science fiction. It can be fantasy. It can be a bunch of things. Um, to me, it's 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 a feeling um, as much as anything. Okay, it's um, you know horror. Well, I mean, it can be horror, it can be science fiction, it can be fantasy, but um, to me, good, weird fiction is fiction that affects you in a way that's not really overt. Everything's a bit askew, a bit off, things are just a bit odd. I mean, maybe some people call that slipstream, some people call that fabulism. Um, to me, it, it's a very broad, I take a very broad view of weird fiction. And that's why I decided in the first place actually to do guest editors with the, the year's best word fiction because each book is a very sort of different book. Laird Barron did the first book. Are you, are you folks aware of the series? Okay, good. Um, Laird Barron did the first book. His book is, as expected, more horror cosmic focused. Kathy Koja did the second book and hers, are, hers is quite like fables. Uh, a bit of a lighter tone, actually. Um, I mean, you can take issue with all the editor's choices because it's very subjective to them what weird fiction is, like it is to probably to all of us. The third volume was Simon Strancis, and his is more horror. Um, Helen Marshall has just handed in her, her manuscript to me, and hers is completely different. It's uh, a, lot, a lot of, you know, Stephen Milhauser-type fiction, where things are just a bit odd and a very literary bent to it. Um, to me, the, the best weird fiction is stuff that while you're reading it, things just sort of, odd things just sort of happen, and um, you get this weird sense. It doesn't even have to have a plot. A lot of it doesn't have a plot. Um, it's much, to me, a feeling as anything else. To me, it's just the, um, the fiction that I like to read. Uh, it's off kilter, it's weird, in the sense that it, has something weird going, strange going on, um, and as Michael said, it's got it's horror, it's every genre. It's just, it's, it, I think it encompasses most of um, much of horror fiction, not all of it. Probably psychological horror would not be considered weird fiction, but any other kind of horror I think would be. Um, so to me, it's kind of a difficult. It's just too much, of, too big a term uh, to define. I've never really successfully articulated a definition. I think of it maybe because of the way we pick out stories for the reread in terms of prototype examples. You have a set of ripples spreading out from the Lovecraft stories, and if it's somewhere on one of those ripples, it's in weird fiction. You have the ripples spreading out from Shirley Jackson, and if it's on one of those ripples, we can probably get away with including it. And they just look at these different sets of ripples, and as long as whatever's in the middle, gets defined as weird fiction, I'm willing to give credit to the things that get influenced by it. Michael, you do a lot of pre-reading for the year's best weird fiction. Yep. How has it changed in the past few years, the stories that you're getting? Um, the fiction itself? Um, I'm seeing more what I would term weird fiction popping up in places that you might not expect. And I don't, know, I don't know if that's just because I'm actually looking outside the remit I normally would look at, and that stuff maybe has always been there. Uh, like, I find a lot of um, really good fiction on Granta, stuff like that. Uh, Granta, um, 
Tin House. Uh, yeah, Tin House. There's a new, new Fireside Fiction is a new website that uh, pays very well for you writers, by the way, and actually has very good fiction, uh, very good weird fiction. Um, uh, Irreal Cafe, I think they've shut down. Um, what are some of the others? Phantom Drift is an annual that's very good. Fairy Tale Review. If you're not reading Fairy Tale Review every year, you should be. It's very good. It's not always weird fiction, but it's really, really well done. So I'm seeing it pop up in a lot of different places, and um, partly I think that's me looking for it, uh, trying to be as broad in my reading as I can. Uh, so maybe some of that's been there all along, but I, I would like to think that market forces um, are for, or people are just writing it and people are publishing it more. Um, and much of it is very literary um, and, you know, ambiguous, quite often plotless, um, but, but it's okay. Um, sometimes so, it's okay. Sometimes it's okay. It depends, you know. Many people can get away with that. Some can't, yeah. Um, but um, I think in... It's changed, it has changed a bit. Um, maybe Jeff Vanderveer's success has, even though I don't consider some of his stuff weird fiction, quite frankly, um, maybe his success has led to some of that. Um, but to me, yeah, I, I, it seems to be cropping up in more literary and commercial areas. So, pivoting to Ellen for a second, do you think that um, the weird fiction short story and, and what is generally considered literary fiction, do you think those lines are blurring more than they have before? Um, I think they've always been blurred, especially in the last 20 years they've been blurring. Um, I've gotten, I've read, I've been reading all the literary journals for years and um, I've often found things there that are horror or weird fiction. Um, Conjunctions is another one, Master's Review. Um, oh yes, I don't, very good. Yeah, I don't think it's a new process, it's just that we're calling it something different now. Um, just like horror has been all over the place but we don't acknowledge it. And there's a lot of horror now in mainstream publishing publications, but or rather book publishers don't call it horror, they don't call it weird fiction, but it is weird. And so I, I think it's always been there, it's just now we're discovering it. We as, a, as <coughs> weird fiction lovers may not have noticed it before, and which we're finding it more outside of the remit of weird tales and FNSF and places like that. Black Clock is another good one. Yes, although well, I think it may have done its last issue. Oh, yeah, sure. I think you're right. Yeah. That was edited by Steve Erickson, who's a really good weird fiction writer, that's, or had been yeah. early in his career. The Sea Came In at Midnight is an amazing, amazing novel by him. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Sam. Sir. <laughs> SJ. With Dim Shores, mostly focused on publishing short fiction. Why does short fiction work so much better for the weird? I think it's sometimes. It does, I'm sorry. It does. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I think sometimes it's hard to maintain that ambiguity and that tone, and keep it interesting over longer um, pieces. Uh, and like you said, some of it doesn't always have a plot, um, and that's very hard to do in a longer piece. Um, it seems to work real well. Shorter the better sometimes. Uh, but I think most of the things I've done have been more novella length or novelettes, and that seems to work for me. That's about my sweet spot there. It's not too short, it's not too long, but it's long enough to say what, what the author wants to say and still have all those elements be interesting and new um, without wearing things out. Um, it, it's harder to write 
novels, although people like John Langan and stuff are starting to show us, you know, maybe it's not that, it's hard, but it can be done for sure. Um, but yeah, it just seems e easier to do it shorter rather than longer, um, just because of the tone, I think. Where's that? Your work functions around ideas from Lovecraft that a lot of people may think are pretty tiresome at this point, um, the deep ones and such. Why take it in such a different direction than everybody else has so far? I mean, I was actually going to talk about the sort of deconstructive work that I've been doing as one of the trends I do see for the future of weird fiction. Um, I think that Lovecraft is almost unique in the ways that he came up with these, these metaphors. I want to make sure I articulate this right. He was terrified of other humans for all sorts of reasons, and some of them not very admirable. But in that terror, he came up with metaphors that work so well that they work for the other side of that terror also. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have a great admiration for him and a great frustration. And part of where I came from with the work that I did was that the language that he uses to describe Deep Ones is very similar to the language that he uses to describe Jewish immigrants in New York. And those are my ancestors, and we were the monsters. And so writing from the perspective of his monsters is almost irresistible as a way to try and get at what leads to those fears and what it's like to live with them. And I see a lot of other people also taking his metaphors and turning them inside out like that. And it's testament both to some of the things that were problematic about him, but also to the power of the way that he wrote about the world and that these, these creations of his work so well that they can be turned inside out and upside down like that and still work and still be powerful. And so you have things like the Ballad of Black Tom that Victor Laval has won so many awards for at this point that rips off of one of Lovecraft's least pleasant to read in my the opinion, Red Hook. Hook. Or Red Hook. And maybe I shouldn't say that because apparently it's Victor Laval's actual favorite story by him and that's why he wrote it. You have Lovecraft Country that mixes freely the cosmic horror with the horror of the Jim Crow era. Um, you have stories like the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow that use his stories and his settings in whole new ways by adding a female voice to it. Um, N.K. Jemisin just announced that her next trilogy is going to be New York as a living entity fighting Cthulhu, which is sort of, uh, given the way Lovecraft thought of New York, that just seems so perfect and so intriguing. So apparently a lot of people are tempted in the same way that I am by these things. So, and I'm going to throw this out to anybody who wants to answer. Um, given our global political climate and the way things have changed over the past five to ten years, is the future of weird fiction inherently more political than the past of weird fiction had been? 
I think it's. You let you take it. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but I, I think that's yes for for every creative endeavor, uh, music, uh, film, literature, all the genres. Everything's going to get political. Sam has just published. Uh, Resist and Refuse is first, is a chapbook, I'm sorry. It's a zine, basically. It's a zine, yeah, so directly related to, you know, the current political climate, which I'm Canadian, so I can say I love Providence. This city, first time I've been here, absolutely love it. I could live here except it's in America. Um, it's just, I, I, think, I think you're going to see a lot, a lot more political. Um, I mean, overtly political. Yeah, overtly political, right out there, yeah. in, in all mediums. Right. Okay. This brings back something we talked about the first day I was here about all fiction is political. And by that, I mean, um, I'm not talking about polemic, I'm not talking pedantic fiction, which sucks, but every, most stories have a stance, a political stance, whether it's overt or not. I hope, I mean, yes, there is going to be more political fiction or more, I hope it's not overt because it gets boring. It does. It has to be subsumed under the story. Maybe more consciously political. By the writers, but hopefully it'll yes. still be not, I mean, to so me. So avoiding propaganda. Exactly, which I just think is boring as fiction. Well, I mean. It, it gets tiresome. It is, because if the writer is telling you everything you need to know about the work, then you don't need to actually read the damn thing. Right. Yeah. What I think about fiction being political, especially with the things that have become political recently, is that if you are writing well, you are getting across the idea that other people are people, that they have interior lives and that their perspectives are worth paying attention to and that their lives are valuable. And you don't need to write a polemic about that, but if like bad characterization has its own moral quality by virtue of making it easy to dismiss the villain, to see the supporting characters as only existing to improve or challenge the central hero. And so good art is, is political in the sense of pushing for empathy. Uh, tangential and not necessarily political are a lot more a, a lot more um, foreign foreign non-American and not English language work is being translated here. So we're getting a lot of writers from um, who are writers of weird fiction from um, East Indian background or East Indian slash American, British, British Indian, yep. and various combinations, both from diaspora, those of the diaspora from, who aren't who from Pakistan but don't live there anymore, and from people who are Pakistani-Americans and all kinds of voices, and I think that's really very valuable to our field. Do you, as an anthropologist, do you feel that you're seeing that work start to influence others? You mean non? Oh, you mean American writers? You mean influencing English? Gringos. Sorry. I'm gringos. Yeah, gringos. Um, are they influencing them? I don't know. I mean, I think more people are trying to use. I think more gringos are trying to use um, possibly other characters who are not like them, and they're, they're putting them in their fiction. 
Um, but I'm not sure it's more so. I mean, I'm not really sure about that. Sam, you right back there? What's that? Yeah, oh yeah. So, most of your work has been by, for lack of a term, up-and-coming writers, writers who haven't been widely published, with a couple exceptions, Michael Sisko and the most wonderful writer in this convention, just about Jeffrey Thomas. Um, Jeffrey Thomas. How do you find these people? Um, actually, most of them are people that I either met here uh, at past conventions or that I've met online through social media. Um, beginning with Jeffrey Thomas, uh, who I met here in 2013. Uh, he wrote for my first chapbook, um, wrote exactly what I asked, what I said I wanted him, or what I wanted to read, and he hit it so easily on the head that uh, I was able to put that out real quickly. And it's mo mostly just from you know people that I've, I've met and that I like, and I find most people that I approach um, are very open to you know doing work with an extremely small press for a very small budget. But if if they like the project, that's okay. Um, I've been really lucky that way, and I, I have been able to work with some people like Jeff and Michael Cisco, but also some of the newer folks, Matt Bartlett, Christy Demeester, uh, Michael Weehunt, Michael Griffin. Um, a whole bunch of others, and uh, it's basically just from personal connections. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. What was, the, what, what was the question? Like how we come to know these people? How we've how we meet them? How do you discover new shit that's worth putting out there? How do we what? Discover new shit. I don't know if you said oh. shit, but, <laughs> okay, but that's sure, a yeah. good thing. Uh, I just I just used to read when I started my press in two thousand and nine. Sorry. Yeah, 2009. We did our first book, uh, Apparitions. Um, I really, I, I just read a lot, and there were certain writers that I really liked, and there was a certain style of book I wanted to see out there. It was this was a ghost story book, but um, you know, sort of contemporary. Um, do you have time for a quick story about Mary Rickard? Anybody? Okay, sure. I'll tell it. I'm going to tell it anyways. Okay. Um, when I put together, when I found the press and put together, sent out invites to the first anthology I did, Apparitions, uh, Mary Rickert was the first person I asked. And she doesn't know me, and I'm saying, hey, I'll give you 50 bucks. Hey, be in this book, my first book. And she said, yes, I'll do it. Um, so as I'm putting the book together, all the other writers are sending stories in. Mary's late, which is fine. And she's late, and she's late. Eventually, I have to publish the book, so I publish it without their story. And she's heartbroken, she tells me. So then uh, I do, you know, contact her last year about Shadows of Tall Trees 7, which is coming out, which has come out this March. I contact her a year in advance, because <laughs> I know. Um, Mary, would you like to, con you know, contribute to the Shadows of Tall Trees 7? I'm putting out. Jules, I love the series, I'd love to do it. Um, so, she said, in fact, I've been writing another story since you last asked me. So the first story that I had asked her for was Journey to the Kingdom. Is anyone familiar with the story? It went on and won the World Fantasy Award. Uh, I think she published it in F Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. So the story she actually wrote for Shadows and Tall Trees 7, she's been working on for seven years. Just, I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> well, she just wrote a story for me, very quickly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just so you know. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, I've been reading 
for the year's best for 30 years now, so, and I have always tried to cover everything that I know exists mm -hmm. in anthologies, magazines, small, very small presses, and you do see the same writers' names, and mm -hmm. if the stories impress you, and, and increasingly, you know, someone writes really well, and you find these stories, and you, you start looking for these writers' names, and then yep. you ask them to write for your anthologies. So, um, but I, but it's of course it's invaluable. I have, I have to rely on them to be published published yep. first. I don't have the time. I don't have a slush pile for anything. Um, so I do rely on stories to be published one way or another mm -hmm. to find the writers. And many writers, as sorry, and many writers, as I've because I've been reading for a few years now for years best word fiction. I do see some of the same writers over and over. And many of them do improve. I mean, some of them oh, yeah. don't, but there, there's, you know, there's a certain level of craft, and, um, and some of them you look out for the work because they are improving each mm -hmm. year. And then once in a while, once in a while, there's someone who, I don't know, if, well, you've only been doing this for a few years. Yeah. Sometimes there's a writer who you don't really like their work that much. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then they write one brilliant story. Yeah. It's like, where did that come from? Yeah. You know, and I'll take that for the year's best, and maybe nothing else ever again. It's just like, wow. Yeah. You know, it's like, and the other thing I get, I get this all the time too, is why don't you take so-and-so's story? This story is brilliant. This story, it, it, this story appeared in this year's best. This story is great. Um, you know, it just has to resonate with me. I, I'm well aware there's certain writers whose work just, I can, I can really see that they are a professional writer and that they have the, the chops to write. For whatever reason, the work just doesn't resonate with me like it does some other writers, and that's simply all it is. Um, but I respect their ability, that's for sure. It's just, everyone's like, oh, why didn't you take this writer? It's like, well, it just didn't work for me. Yeah, and then I love the person who complained that there was no Nathan Ballingrad story in the year's best two years. I say, he didn't write anything. Yeah, you know, It's like, yeah. don't blame me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, most weird fiction is generally pessimistic, either philosophically or narratively, but your work is really optimistic. Is it difficult to combine those elements for you? I honestly see a lot of weird fiction as optimistic in uh, its own way. Um, it, taking Lovecraft as a prototypical example, on the one hand, you have the, you know, the uncaring universe and things may go terribly no matter how hard you try. And on the other hand, you have this world that is brimming with life and intelligence that holds on tenaciously from the beginning of time down to its very end. You have creatures that preserve records of their civilizations for billions of years. And you know, when, when you're thinking about, as I suspect Lovecraft was too, is anyone going to remember my stories in 10 years or 50 years? That's a very, exciting idea and so it's that core of optimism that I think a lot of people do use to get comfort and hope out of what can in fact be very depressing stories on their surface. Does anybody else want to tackle that as well? Whether or not weird fiction is essentially pessimistic? I think that's the wrong question in a way. 
to me. I mean, horror fiction is to me pessimistic and nihilistic. And so when it's weird, fic- weird fiction can be either. To me, that's the difference between dark fantasy and horror. So there's weird fiction that I would consider dark fantasy that does have an optimistic or neutral ending. And then there's weird fiction that I consider horror that would not. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with, with what Ellen says. I mean, much of it does, much of weird fiction, well, much of all fiction actually is very depressing. Much of the fiction I like is very depressing. We were talking last night about uh, Dan Sean. I don't know if you, anyone knows him, familiar with him. But hey, he's a beautiful writer, so depressing though. But I love it, I, uh, like his stuff kills me every time I read it, Cormac McCarthy as well. Um, yeah, a lot of it is very pessimistic. Um, but I do, I think I do see, and it's probably gonna get more pessimistic actually, uh, given, the, given the Trumpian years. He won't last more than this year, really. You don't get into that. Okay. Anyways, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, probably will get more depressing and pessimistic. But I do see in my readings, if I do read like something like Fairy Tale Review, a lot of that stuff uh, does have some hopeful, uh, not necessarily hopeful, but sort of bright edges along the seams of some of the fiction. Um, even if it's telling, even if the heart of the story is dark, there is edges that glimmer with uh, a razor sharp light at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think you can absolutely be optimistic. Um, I find in a lot of anthologies that I read, which is mainly what I read these days, um, I'm always kind of surprised, I guess, to see that there are things in there that you know, you don't necessarily have a happy ending, but I wouldn't say they were pessimistic either. And when we were putting together Looming Low, um, we tried to flow the stories so that they do kind of mix it up a bit. Um, there are some that where the ending is not just a terrible, you know, then the um, monster comes and eats them and everybody's dead. You know, there's, there's much more to it than that. Um, it can go lots of different ways. And it's not about whether it's pessimistic or optimistic. It's just, again, I, I keep coming back to the tone. Um, yeah, it depends a lot on the writer, right? Like, you know what you're going to get with Lagotti. <laughs> and you're going to get something a bit different from Milhauser. You said that yeah, but some writers Yes, yeah, that's true. But some writers will do both. I mean, a lot of yeah. some of the best writers have stories who that are optimistic and stories that are pessimistic. Yeah. And that was what makes them really interesting that you don't know what to expect. Yeah, and they they can write in many genres and yeah. And speaking of optimism, Sam. Yes. Why on earth did you start a small press these days? <laughs> um, I tried to talk him out of it. <laughs> and so did a number of people. Um, but uh, just because I wanted to be involved. Um, I, had, I came here in 2013. Uh, that was my first real exposure to this group, this community. And I, I really liked what I saw. And I wanted to do something with it. Um, I'm not really a fiction writer. I'm not an artist. Uh, but I had some layout. That's what I do for my day job. I do production art and layout and such. And I figured I, I could do that. And with print on demand and all these other things now that you have access to, the barrier to entry is very low. And it just seemed like it might be fun. And it has been. It's, this is pretty much why I'm here. It's, it's, it's not to make a living. It's because I love it. It's because it's so much fun. And hopefully someday, maybe, I will be able to make a living at it. But 
That's not the main driving force. Yeah. Good luck with that part. Michael, <laughs> how, how long was it between Shadows and Tall Trees 6 and 7? How long, sorry, how long ago was it divided? <laughs> between Shadows and Tall Trees 6 and 7? Uh, three years. Why did you start it again? Why, Why did, did I start it again? again? Uh, that's a very good question. Because um, <clears throat> it was my real first love, and I was missing... Well, Carol is my first love, and she's here, right? I can see that. Um, it was my second real love, and um, I was just missing it. I really loved the series, and I just wanted to bring it back. It'll probably be another three years before the next one, because it almost killed me. I had an open submission period. I think we talked about this yesterday. I read 662 submissions. <coughs> I only wish it was 666. Ah, <laughs> oh, four short. I was like, oh, Stephen Graham Jones, send me four stories, rule. And it went in there. Um, um, it was just, I wanted to, I know people like, people kept asking for it, for one thing. And um, in fact, this weekend, when's Shadow of the Tall Trees 8 coming out? And I'm like, the first one, this one's only been out three months, please, give me a break. Um, so I just decided I would, I would put it together and um, read through all those submissions and and torture yourself. Uh, and torture myself. Yeah, while well, I'm reading for years in square kitchen as well, where I read about 3,000 stories. Well, read, you know, I skim. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to do another one, and I'm um, very happy with the reception so far. Now, did either you or Ellen feel any conflict with the, just the concept of Year's Best? <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. In what sense? I mean, I'm, what do you mean by conflict? Um, you mean picking what we consider the year's best? Sure, and even whether or not it's an ethical thing to do. No, I have no problem with it at all. It's my taste, and people know it's my taste. You know, that's I mean, that's the good part of having several years' bests. Um, yeah, mine, most of them overlap only a little bit, so you're getting several different editors' consideration about what they think. Sometimes we do overlap. Sometimes, so everyone thinks, okay, we agree that this story is absolutely fabulous. Right. But no, I have no ethical problem with it. So is the, the feel itself better the more years best there are? I'm not sure the feel's better, but it may be served, different tastes might be served by having more years best. I mean, you don't want to, I mean, they're slightly different. I mean, there's a years best fantasy in science fiction. There's a years best dark fantasy in horror. Sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know if you can hear me. Uh, there's a weird, the best weird. There's a now a new splatterpunk. I don't know what it's called. Hardcore horror. Hardcore. So there's several, and they don't all do the same thing. Steve Jones is actually concentrates a little more on England, UK writers, although I usually have a lot of UK writers. So a lot of them, and we all have very different tastes, and I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I mean, hopefully it doesn't hurt the field any. You know, I mean, I hope we all have enough sales to continue. I mean, that's basically what's going to make sure, ensure whether we continue or not, if people buy our books. Yeah, Michael has a new kid on the block. What do you say? My, um, my, my series is a bit different because I have a guest editor every year. So uh, here's what I do. I'll just give you the nuts and bolts. I read as much as I can. I ask for PDFs. If I really like a story, I will approach the publisher or the writer and ask them to send me a hard copy version that I can send to my guest editor. So what I normally do is I start reading in about April, and about for seven or eight months I send uh, my guest editor 10 stories a month or whatever. So I usually end up sending between 70, 80 stories out of the 3,000 or so I try to read. Um, and then it's really up to the guest editor. All of it, the whole thing is up to them. They can choose whatever they like. 
So initially, did you blind? Did you give them blind? No. One year, me and Simon did blind submissions, and then then we decided we wouldn't do that. I don't. It, it was it was okay. It's funny because most of the time you could tell who wrote. Oh, this is a Ramsey Campbell story, right? Yeah, you're right. Whatever. So I mean. I, so we, I, it was a lot too, it was too much work. Yeah, I was gonna, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was too much work, so, so essentially, the guest editor, even though, it, like, it's initially filtered through my lens, but I tutored, I have a very broad view of weird fiction. So there's, you know, there's a bit, a bit of everything in there. So the final selections are up to them. Um, I do think in the year's best, there's like four different year's best science fiction ones, isn't there? There's quite a few. But there was, I think this year, there was so much overlap between a few of them, wasn't there? Last year, there's two of them had five of the same stories or something like that. Um, well, I have, I'll tell you a yeah. secret. Yeah. When Paula, Paula Garan and I, once in a while, we will confer. Right. If there's a story, if there's a, an author whose stories we like, we love, and they have more than one story we love, yeah. we will not take the same story. Right. We will decide between us, okay, you take that one, I'll take this one. It, it's only if the stories are equally terrific. Yeah. I mean, you know, we both really love them. Otherwise, yeah. we would never do that. Yeah, I've got a, yeah, I'll tell you a secret as well. So this year, Helen Marshall chose a story by Sam J. Miller. I forget what the story was, but the story had already been picked up for five different years' bests. And I said, Helen, I'm not publishing it. People are going to read it. Trust me. Oh, okay. So she picked another one of Sam's stories. Okay, I have another example yeah. like that. Um, remember the story by Peter Watts, The Things? Yeah. Everyone picked it up. Yeah. And I decided not to pick it up because, number one, everyone else was picking it up. But number two, to me, it wasn't a horror story because from the, it was from The Things' point of view and it was not, you know, The Things' thing was, or Things was very happy. <laughs> yeah. So, but basically, I also just didn't want to be one of six who picked it up. Yeah. So I do see quite a bit of overlap in the science fiction annuals um, from year to year. I think there's actually less science fiction being published, and I think horror That's, and yeah. fantasy are much broader, I think, than yeah. science fiction. I think that may be why. Yeah. Well, let's unpack that a bit then. Let's talk about why that is, that, you know, just darker fiction is being more published than regular old science fiction. Oh, it's only because science fiction is more specific. I mean, I don't think there's any magical reason for it or any philosophical reason. I just think horror and fantasy imbue much more, imbue mainstream fiction or in everything. Um, so that's the only reason why. I think science fiction is just more specific. That's the only reason I think. Yeah, yeah I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would tend to say maybe the socio-political climate plays into it a little bit, but... Um, Says the happy Canadian. Yeah, I tend to think there's more, yeah, there's a, science fiction is very, I, I, science fiction readers seem very, uh, you know, I'm not going to say narrow-minded, I just did, I guess. Uh, they have their specifics that they like, and I don't know if there is enough actual science fiction out there that is broad enough. Uh, it seems very market-driven, and they seem to, a lot of them are the same stories to me over and over again. I see a lot more experimentation in weird fiction, in horror, in the literary realm. I think science fiction has its has its uses. There's some great writers, um, but but I don't see a lot of 
you know, overarching development, a lot of experimentation in. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, I agree as far as experimentation in... Um, Weird fiction and horror? No, in structure. In structure? It, um, but I do think that there's a lot, and in fact, I mean, I've been publishing more science fiction for tour.com, and I'm finding it's more political and yeah, more yeah. about global warming. I mean, I think it has, it is evolving and it's changing and it's getting better and it's not staying the same at all. I just think I would not consider the stories that I publish in, in tour.com as the ones that are science fiction. I just, they're just not horror. Yeah. I mean, there are, once in a while you get overlap, but it's just a whole different, it's tone. Yeah. It's tonal, and most science fiction is not horror. I Which mean, is interesting. Why don't we get that overlap so much when it really is something that you did see a lot at the origins of the field, the combination of scientific concepts and science fiction with horror mood and tropes or with weird fiction tropes? Are, are we getting less of that now? Uh, I have to, I, I'm not sure I can get my head around it. I mean, I'd have to really think about hard, that hard. Um, I mean, I was reading a lot of old stories by Richard Matheson, Robert Block, um, Charles Beaumont, and all of those writers when I was reading for sci fiction looking for classic reprints. And a lot of those stories were mainstream, almost. Oh, yeah. Matheson stuff, a lot of it was horror, but it was mainstream, and it was published in mainstream publications. Same with Beaumont. Yeah, Beaumont. Yeah. So that's why it's difficult. It was all... It wasn't, the genres didn't seem as separated as much as they are now. I mean, I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure if it's a marketing thing or what, but that's why I don't know how to answer that so easily. <laughs> do you see the genres starting to blur together again? Uh, I can definitely see that that could be happening. I think, um, you're right that we're, we're not getting as much overlap with science fiction. And I think that's partly because attitudes towards not knowing are changing. And in some ways, we have a clearer idea of what we don't know and what it means not to, not to know something. So we just so, know too much in order to? Not even necessarily that, but you know, that, I write both science fiction and fantasy, and I have a background as a social scientist, and when I sit down to write something, a lot of times I find it easier to find the shape I'm looking for in fantasy and weird fiction than I do in science fiction, just because I will get caught up in Here's the thing that I'm pretty sure that we will have an answer to sometime between now and when this thing will actually be published, and I'm not sure that I want to try and take a guess on that. Or the way this actually works with real science doesn't actually describe the thing that I want to talk about. And I, I don't at all want to diss on science fiction here, but I think that as scientific research develops in some ways, those tools become more challenging in a way that can be very cool but can also be somewhat intimidating to use from a literary perspective. Is it because science fiction is necessarily less abstract? Yes. I think Sometimes. that I think so. Usually. Uh, of course, and it depends on how you define the science fiction, but... Let's <laughs> not define anything. No. I mean, well, I mean we talk about how, you know, at, where, where science fiction and, and, and horror and a lot of weird... Well, uh, okay, 
As a critic, the way I see weird fiction is it's literature that revolves around the unknowable. Mm. Um, and science fiction is necessarily revolves around at least the idea of knowledge and discovery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so let me back up and give an example of current weird science fiction that sort of runs counter to these things that we're complaining about, which is Nita Okorafor's work. Oh, God, yes. Who is, she was, you know. One of our guests of honor. Right here, exactly, yes. Incredible writers. And, you know, Binti and Lagoon, these are things where there's, that line has not been drawn to really excellent effect. And I, I suspect that when we see the genres as more separate, that's more, people are doing this work and it's, it can be easy to look in one corner and not see it or look in another and see it and it, we may be getting more really interesting stuff. Can I, as a kid, I realized when I was reading Lovecraft, I was reading Lovecraft and I was reading science fiction. And I came to the I realized science fiction is the sense of wonder. And as we would, I was taught when I was growing up, and basically horror is the terror, a sense of wonder and embrace of the unknown. Horror is the opposite. It's the terror of the unknown, the fear of the unknown, you know, for what it's worth. But there's a perfect example of though of science fiction horror, of course, is I have no mouth and I'm a scream by Harlan Ellison. So there's always been science fiction horror, the combination there, and uh, Leningen versus the ants and the fly and uh, the thing or who goes there. There is, you know, there is a long tradition of science fiction horror out there. And some of the power of that um, is that you get the ability to combine that people can yes. feel both the fear of the unknown and, and the, the wonder awe. of it yeah. and that and you don't know is something it, the that balance we need to look for like, more yeah. in the field. Yeah. Now, Sam, mm -hmm. one commonality about all the stuff that you've published, and I mean everything you've published so far, um, aside from the music you know, resist, is almost a folkloric sense of fabulism. Do you see that as an important part of contemporary weird fiction? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I quite understand that, um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, what was the you, question? What, can you clarify? Yeah. For what, for what you're listening to through Dim Shores, do you strive to move away from a sense of realism in the fiction? Uh, yeah, there is always a sense of unreality uh, to one degree or another. Um, some of it's very subtle. Um, SP Kowski's story, which technically... I'm wearing uh, the illustration. Oh, yeah, you got the shirt, uh, Stag in Flight. Uh, there's technically nothing terribly um, unrealistic about it. it. It could actually happen, being as a lot of it takes place in the protagonist's mind. Um, but there's other things like that are very much fabulous. Um, and I, I try to do a, a very wide array of different things. I don't want to do the same kind of stuff every time. And there's been some more fantasy type ones. Uh, Craig Lawrence Gidney's chapbook, The Nectar of Nightmares. Uh, it is almost just pure fantasy with like a dark overtone to it. Um, Michael Sisko's The Knife Dance. Um, same thing. It, it's not horror at all. Um, if, if anything, it's, uh, it's more about a sense of wonder or awe. Um, at least that's what I, I got out of it. Um, and I think you, you can do it 
all those ways. Um, there's lots of different ways to do it. Yeah, I, I have two brains when I'm editing. Um, when I'm editing for the year's best weird fiction, I do make a conscious effort, because I have a guest editor, to try to provide a wide range of stories in voice, theme, structure, genre. When I'm editing my own projects, I don't think I make any conscious decision about is this real? Is, is this realism? Is this unreal? Is this weird fiction? I don't. I just edit it and like as Peter Straub says, I'll know weird fiction when I read it, that sort of thing. So um, I, do, I do have a very sort of different mindset to the different projects I do. All right, well, we've thoroughly examined what's going on right now. Let's start talking about the future really quick. Um, Ruthanne, what do you see as the future of weird fiction? Where do you see it going? So is this predictive or is this... That's entirely up to you. <laughs> All right, I, I'll, I'll go with the wish list end of this. One of the things that I really enjoy about weird fiction is that the tropes of cosmic horror are, they end up fitting really well whatever we find are the current apocalypses that we're afraid of. And it has pretty much been the case that since the founding of the field, there has been at least one current apocalypse that is terrifying us, whether that's the aftermath of the world wars, whether that's the Cold War. And we talked a little about the political, and you mentioned some of the science fiction around global warming. I don't think that the definitive cosmic horror global warming story has been written yet, and that is something that I really want to see us you have to write grapple it. with. <laughs> if no one else writes it in the next couple of years, I might. <laughs> but it, it's a, such a different shape of fear and of slowly looming horror from the Cold War, and I think we have some really interesting tools in the field and interesting metaphors to look at that, and it hasn't been done that much yet. I'm awful at this kind of thing. I just like, I just want to read new writers all the time. Um, I'm just hoping, we'll, you know, that the people who I've started reading will continue to write and continue to thrill me, and that I'll be finding new writers all the time, and that people won't be giving up on writing short fiction. I mean, that's always a problem. Most of my short fiction writers end up writing novels and never come back to short fiction. So there's a constant struggle of the short story editor to keep our writers writing short stories or and find I, new ones. I, I remember hearing about the death of the short story since I first started reading. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll see more diverse and translated work. Um, we're, we're seeing an influx. Again, I think maybe it's always been there. But now we're looking for these new voices. And you'll see a lot of writers, Filipino writers, um, African writers. Chinese. Uh, Chinese. Chinese. Yeah, yeah we, we took a Chen Kiyofian story, the first volume. Um, Southeast Asia. I think they've probably already been there. Um, it's just like when I do my reading and I'm finding weird fiction in odd places. It's probably already been there. These writers have been doing this probably, so I think we'll see more of that. And we're, we're actively looking for translated works. Um, we'd love to see that sort of stuff. And there's, there's some uh, new crop of writers. Um, some of them are here probably. Uh, Jason Wyckoff is very good. Jonathan Padgett. 
uh, Harmony Neal, Priya Sharma, um, Laura Morrow, Christopher Slasky, Kurt Favre. Uh, you'll be seeing their work for a number of years, I think, as well. Yeah, I, I think that's also right. I think we're going to hear a lot of more points of view, um, a lot of different types of writers. And I think that also has to do with the fact that um, there are more small presses that can do this kind of thing, that don't have to do the same sort of stuff that's been done before. We actively seek out um, different voices. And it's easier to do that now. It's easier to get those out to people for them to read with um, whether it's ebooks or digital printing or whatever it is. You, you don't have to go do a print run of one thousand books now that you have to sell to make your money back. You, you can afford to you know, go a little farther out there. But that's different from short fiction. Short fiction never had that problem. Um, I think I, I do see more foreign works being translated here, and that's what's changed. And I think Lavi Tidor had done a, he'd created a website with yeah. some other people specifically to, I forget what it was called. World SF World something. SF. And that was, I don't know how many years ago, eight years ago, 10 years yeah. ago. I don't know if Jeff Vandermeer, a few people were involved in that. And they made a conscious effort to get non-English speaking writers over here. I mean, to, to come to, you know, to get their stuff published here in English. And that is the problem, of course, and it's always been the problem because Americans don't speak enough languages. When I went to Kiev for Eurocon several years ago, everyone, it, it was in, combined with a book fair, and everyone came up to me, because I was an editor, I was like, how do we get published in the United States? How do we get published in the United States? You have to get your work translated, because no one here, very few people here, will be able to translate it or have the time or will do it. And that has always been the issue, and I think that's what's changed in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why, but I think it's the impetus of Lavi and other people who have, who have made a conscious effort to do this, and that's yeah. really important. Right, so final question before I turn it over to the audience. Michael has already answered this. If everybody can go down and just, who are some new writers we should be reading? New you writers. just threw some out. I just threw some out, so. Yep. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot. Um, the ones that I've been really fond of recently that are fairly new, um, Christy Demeester, I mentioned her before. Um, I really like her work. Um, and there's a whole bunch of people in the anthology. Uh, Brooke Wara, Brooklyn Wara, uh, Lisa Hannett, um, who is new to me. I'm not sure exactly how new she is. Um, Slatsky, uh, Kurt Faber, as, as you mentioned. Um, those are the first names that come to mind. Um, but you already named off a whole bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll also add Victoria Leslie. I don't know how new she is. You might know her. V.H. Leslie, she writes under. Um, if only someone had published a collection of hers. I published her collection. I'm publishing Priya Sharma's first collection in March of next year, just so you all know. It's called Fabulous Beasts, and it's fabulous. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been publishing Priya for yes, several you, years. Yes, you have. Well, that's where I noticed her. I know. Thank I know. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Priya is someone. She's a doctor full time, but she writes. Um, she's British Indian, and she's a fabulous writer. She writes science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Yeah. Um, other people who you may not know, who I don't think are really that new, but I've been published picking them stories from them uh, for the years best lately. Carol Johnstone, Alice Littlewood. They're both British. Carmen Maria Machado uh, writes some really weird stuff. Um, Kelly Robeson, who writes science fiction, but also has been writing some very weird, hor horrific, gross fiction sometimes. Um, Karen Warren from Australia, and Angela Slatter, both from Australia. Nadja Bulkin. Um, yeah, there are plenty more. I'm sure, you, know, you must know a few. <laughs> 
So um, I've been really fond of everything I've seen by Livia Llewellyn. It's some of the stuff that most genuinely creeps me out from the modern work. There was an author who was first published in She Walks in Shadows. I'm not sure if she has anything else out, but I'm looking forward to seeing more from her, Amelia Gorman. And Cassandra Kaw, who's had a couple of novellas out from Tor.com, and her stuff is absolutely brilliant. And then one of, uh, we were talking about works in translation. I really love the one piece in translation I was able to find from Anders Fager. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but from the Swedish. And that was Furies from Boris. And to my knowledge, it's the only thing he has available so far in English, but I'm hoping to see more. (laughs) And for my own part, um, Matthew Bartlett, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Sonny Moraine, who's been publishing for a little while now, but hasn't gotten that much recognition. Yeah. And their work is at the edge of everything. It's almost impossible to categorize their work as far as genre goes. And they have just this incredible voice. Yeah. So we're Sonny's gonna, very ferocious. Yep. Yeah. And we're going to turn it over to the audience for a couple questions. Anybody? Yes. I uh, organize. I work for Jeff Mack, organizing steampunk festivals, and I am a huge proponent of keeping the literary aspect of steampunk as much at the forefront as that can be done and not have it overshadowed completely by the big costume show and the other things that steampunk has become. Do you, uh, each of you tell, tell me why you think that as well, it seemed that as soon as the new weird emerged, it immediately evolved into steampunk and the weirdest, most cutting-edge weird fiction I encounter every year seems to come out of steampunk. Why is the Victorian setting and the weirdest of weird fiction so in combination with I mean, the sassy answer is that they went back in Red Blaylock. Is that yeah. James Blaylock, they went yeah. back and read it, that's the sassy answer. I don't know if there's another answer. Well, we were talking about the boundary between science fiction and fantasy, and I think at least in the popular imagination, if not in reality, that's the point at which those things were just starting to clearly start to demarcate. And so if you go back there, in some ways the setting makes it feel easier to blur those boundaries. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, so I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't see a lot of weird fiction in steampunk. I yeah, I haven't really, taken any, you know. I haven't read enough steampunk to be able to say that, to no, judge that. No, neither have I. Yeah, um, that's also something I'm not entirely familiar with there. Um, I don't read a lot of that. I, I don't really read a whole lot these days uh, that I'm not going to publish, I guess. And, yeah. and most of that tends to come from other areas. Um, I, I have read some that I thought was very good. And I think when, when anything is said in the past, we know a lot more about that time, you know, just factually. And it can be e- easier to tweak that maybe. That's the only thing I can really think of. Yeah. But I, I think Roseanne actually had, had a good point where it's, it's a time when we knew less, so there was more possibility. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, next question. Yes, in the back. Scripture. Um, I want to challenge the idea that uh, weird fiction is political. Uh, I think 
Can, sorry, can you speak up a bit? What? Can you speak up a bit? Yeah, I wanted to challenge the idea that fear fiction is political. Um, I think it not only has to do with politics, has to do not only with human, human values, but also with um, ideologies that are constructed that don't really tolerate ambiguity, black and white, right and wrong, and the things that work within the framework of the ideology and things that don't. Um, but fear fiction isn't that more about blurring boundaries and um, about imagining uh, creating ambiguities and about imagining different possibilities and, and celebrating even inhuman um, and or what could be or what might that mean actually be. Um, you know, as God as Lovecraft said, uh, human beings are not like a tiny speck was in the, the bad axes of infinity. And uh, there's probably so much more out there. Um, do you do you think like you mentioned the, the There's I'm not sure what the question is. So, I think he's challenging. Well, I don't think we said weird fiction we, is political. We didn't say that at all. It can be. I did. I, did. I mean, what I said was all fiction is political. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, every interaction, interaction between two people is an act of politics. Mm -hmm. And I would argue you were suggesting more about alien points of view, more about the inhuman universe. And those are wonderful themes. But every time that you write about those, you are making a claim, at least within the story universe, about what boundaries are natural and which ones aren't. And those are political arguments. Mm -hmm. And how we should deal with that is a political argument. I mean, if, if you look to, I'll, I'll get very political here, if you look to political arguments, some of them are about how much control people have over their lives and their environments and do they have enough control that we should feel no obligation to help them if bad things happen to them? Or alternatively, is it so natural and reasonable and perhaps even just that bad things happen to people that we should or shouldn't feel a need to help them? And so anytime you're writing an inhuman cosmic horror universe, somewhere in there if you have human characters, those characters decide how is it that they're going to deal with a universe that is not fair in the help or harm that comes to people. And if you have any two humans in that story, they have to decide how to handle the fact that the universe is unfair in the help or harm that it gives to the other person. But is help and harm always clearly distinct, or is it sometimes ambiguous or depending on perspective? It could very easily be ambiguous. And even so, how you deal with that, again, eventually is something that has political implications, even if you never address them. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're sort of drawing a false dichotomy. I mean, as civilizations move on, truths become no longer truths, which is just, you know, inherently political itself. And you, you brought up Peter Watts' The Things, which is funny because he told me once that it was a love letter to the idea of communism. What's more <laughs> political than that? Mm -hmm. um, so, do we have time for one more? We have three, we have, we're not done to we have 12 more minutes. We have 12 more minutes, keep going. Right. <laughs> Any more questions?
Yes, on the floor over there. I was going to say that any seemingly unpolitical piece of art is fundamentally art in the status quo, therefore we can't Yes. <laughs> yes, I would totally agree with that. I would go but do you have any more questions? Fiona. Sure. I guess since politics has come up, I mean, genre fiction, but I guess I'm interested in is weird fiction has never quite run into the same problem as, let's say, a rabbit puppies type problem, maybe because we have volumes not official or it's kind of voting, but also there is no clear political viewpoint of weird fiction. That is, I would say, the, I don't. Largely because it's so ambiguous. I mean, we have, there are weird fiction writers, both wonderful and terrible, who lean as far to the right as can be and as far to the left as can be. But it's easier to be ideological in heroic fantasy. It's easier to be ideological in science fiction. And if you're dealing with literature that is essentially dealing with the unknowable and our reactionary reaction to the unknowable, ideology gets a little softer. Y'all are talking about a different field than the one that I've been watching because I've been seeing lots of arguments over how how we acknowledge, how we deal with Lovecraft's racism, the degree to which that permeates the later field, whether the deconstructions of the sort that I work on and several other people do as well are a legitimate part of the field. And we haven't had the Sad puppies, maybe because the Shirley Jackson Awards are not at, do not loom as large in the imagination as the Hugo's do, but we've certainly yeah, there have been major had arguments about politics in the field that I think have been both interesting and valuable, and at times acrimonious. Oh, absolutely, but I read your question speaking about the work itself. Well, I guess with that, which is where I'm coming from. I would say that there's some brutality. I mean, I've seen some of the things that certain people have written about other people online. Um, I'm, I, I see it as brutal as the sad puppies and more personal, well, as personal. I mean, I think fandom is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it always has been, it always will be. people who love reading speculative fiction and who dedicate a great part of their life to it. You will always have 
just the fucking assholes who just want to make it shitty for everybody. No. And I think the Necronomicon, the Necronomicon has been very lucky in that regard. We, we haven't tended to have very many arguments here. It's been, this has been a lovely weekend all around. And I think the main reason we don't see something like the rabbit puppies in weird fiction or something like the Futurians in weird fiction is because the more ideological you want your work to be, the less weird it is. And that's, that's my perspective as a critical philosopher. I don't know about anybody else. There will be t-shirts in the lobby. Fandom is terrible. Yeah. We could perhaps expand the humanity in general and be of properly oh, absolutely. cosmic horror. But fandom is like concentrated humanity. What the Rabbit Puppies is is a group of um, right wing writers and fans, and that's how they describe themselves who feel that the field of science fiction has left them behind and c continually advocate for more right-wing science fiction. And who stole the Hugos for a couple yes. of years. Or tried to, I mean, but right. they, yeah. Okay, so thank you all so much for coming, and thank you to our wonderful panel. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.